Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's, uh, let's see, Wednesday in the afternoon, about 3.30 or so, approximately. And I'm going to do a uh, talk about uh, a, save, a, a famous person, Pnei Shore. Not the Pnei Shore that you know, though. Um, because this is in the new Gnazim uh, catalog that I mentioned the other day that I got in the mail from the Stefanskis. And they have a piece here, very interesting, uh, a chuba in uh, almost like an autograph. From um, the Megini uh, Shlom, from from the Pnei Yeshua, when he was in Krakow, and it's uh, something he writes himself, and later on it gets published after his death in the book that they put out of his responsa. So this is an interesting item. Woo! Opening big sixty grand. Woo! All right. <laughs> um, but a very interesting person. I've never done the Pnei Yeshua. I did the Pnei Yeshua, but I never did the Pnei Yeshua. Now what do I mean? You've heard, if I say Pnei Yeshua, who I did do long ago, you, everybody's heard of him. That's the guy who wrote the Chedushim on Shas, who lived in the 1700s, died in 1756. The Pnei Yeshua. That's the one they talk about in the Yeshivas and so on and so forth. However, many know, also, but not so many, that uh, that his grandfather was a famous rabbi. That's who I want to talk about today, the grandfather of Pnei Yeshua who after his death, they published some, as far uh, as Shalos and Shubas, and they called the Shalos to his Pnei Yoshua. Happened to be. Um, I'm not exactly sure which came which, uh, but I think that came before the Pnei Yeshua that you know, simply because um, our hero, the one I'm talking about today, was long dead by the time his books were published. So I don't want to get confusing over here. So let's get down to business. We're talking about... Uh, Rosh uh, Charif over here, right? Rosh Ben Yosef, who was living and one of the people in the golden age of the Jews in Poland. And, you know, as you go through famous biographies, famous names, there are all sorts of people out there. Some of them had a hard life and had to overcome challenges. And some of them did not. Once in a while you get somebody who lived at the right time, married the right girl, lived in the right place. Things kind of, you know, folded in his way. And that's where our hero is today, the original Pnei Yeshua, Rishol of Krakow. Um, and even died, so to speak, at the right time, sort of. Uh, so let me explain. So we're talking about somebody today who uh, lived all of his life in the old kingdom of Poland, Lithuania, that once upon a time existed, that we've spoken about many times. He lived in the late 1500s, I think like from 1578 to 1748, so he lived to be 70 years old. <coughs> at a time when the Kingdom of Poland, which no longer exists, the Kingdom of Poland was basically identical with Eastern Europe. Uh, it included, in the years I'm talking about, the current country of Poland, plus the current countries of Lithuania and Latvia, plus Belarus and the Ukraine, for and after Putin. So that was a big chunk of land. 
And it wasn't the Russians who ruled that at that time, but the Polacks, the Polish. And the Jews who were in there as servants of the uh, of the aristocrats, of the Paritzim, of the noblemen. And the Jews did okay. And because the Jews had emigrated to Poland, or a wave of them at least, became the dominant group in Polish Jewry, and there were Ashkenazic Jews who moved there from Germany. They brought all the Ashkenazic uh, ways, minhagim and customs, and culture, which was a highly insular uh, culture focused on rabbinic literature. And so basically, Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. And that's what they liked to do. It didn't bother them. They didn't feel themselves stifled. And as a result, in the 1500s and 1600s, the kingdom of Poland became a big Mokim Torah and remained the biggest until Hitler. All the movements in Judaism come from that part of the world. The from and the not from. The Hasidus on the one hand, the Zionism, for example, on the other. You know, all that stuff. Now, uh, in the period we're talking about, which is the 1500s, that was the good old days. I think I've read you before, if you want to have a vivid description, maybe it's a little exaggerated, maybe not. You look at the end of the Yavain Metzula, which is the famous book that talks about the Chemelnitsky massacres, which took place in 40... Tachvatat, 40 and 49. And there's an elegy at the end where the author says, oh, the Chorban that has, we had such a paradise over here from the front point of view and everywhere yeshivas and everywhere learned people, and everybody supporting Torah and the, uh, the, the Torah scholars are given the highest covet, etc., 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 which is not exactly false. I mean, there was a dark side to everything, of course, but nevertheless... The Jewish culture flourished in its way, very insular. They have nothing to do with the Polacks in terms of culture or anything like that. But the Poles did their thing, and they, they didn't want the Jews to be part of Poland. And the Jews did not want to be part of Poland, so everybody had a good time. Our hero was born into an elite family, this kind of culture, and lived all of his life that way. And he never lacked for money, and so he had Torugdul Bamakamechon, and Elm Hazen Elm Habo, as far as I'm concerned. Now, what do I mean? He's born in the late 1570s, which was the right time for this, um, in the Kingdom of Poland. Uh, his, let me see now, his great-uncle, I think, was the Maharal. So, therefore, he has the Yichas. Well, but Ashkenazim, that's a big deal, the Yichas. Especially in those days. Oh, my Lord, the Yichas, Yichas, Yichas. So, he comes from an elite family. And remember, the Maharal guys claim that they go back to David Amalek. So, you know, you feel, you're growing up feeling like you're really hot stuff. His father, who was a rabbi, put him to the grind to learn up a belt. Okay, I mean, I get that, you know, I get that. But he obviously was a genius, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about him. One second, sorry about that. And um, so, you know, it's, it's like I told you before, he had a happy life in the sense that everything came together just right for him. For him, the system worked, you understand? And uh, so he learned up a storm. So here we are, somebody born in 1578, so imagine when you're... 10, 15 years old, that's the late 1580s, early 1590s. So he's learning up a storm with his father. He goes off to the yeshivas at that time, which were flourishing. He went to the main guys, uh, the Sma and the, uh, what do you call it? And the Maram, Maram Lublin. I've done the Maram Lublin, but I don't know if I did the Sma, who were big rabbis, obviously. These are the, this is the era when all the big Polish rabbis are writing the classic commentaries to the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, our hero won't go into that which is interesting, but some of his students were, I mean, we'll see later on, his, one of his told me to go to Shach, you know, and he learns up, you know, uh, a storm, and 
he marries the right girl, so to speak. I'm sure in his situation, probably father-in-law gave him a zillion, but said, I want value for money, so I'm willing to, uh, you know, to bankroll a son-in-law, provided he becomes a god of the door. Well, he did. You know what I mean? Notice he got value for money, so to speak. And, um... He was, you know, he was good in all areas of learning, so to speak, you know, alumnus and bakiyas and halacha. And after a while, this is, like I say, he, as far as we know, he had an uncomplicated life. And so, uh, by the way, he's originally from Vilna, which is just interesting. But in those days, there's no, I'm about to say something very interesting. In those days, in 1500s, there was no thing that this guy's a Litvak, and that's a Galicianer and all that. The whole Polish Jewry was one big mishmash. People moved from A to Z, Z to A, in the middle and between. It didn't matter. And that's why a guy like him, growing up, could learn in Vilna, and then he could go, like I say, to Lublin, learn by the Maral, a Maram, uh, I'm sorry. And uh, he didn't go to the Masha, interestingly. And um, he was in, as I say, Desma and some other people. Uh, was it? Uh, the Bey Shmuel was the Rebbe of his, you know, the guy wrote on the Ebenezer. So, like I say, he's the right family, and he learned in the right yeshivas. To use modern expression, he learned by Rabbi Chaim, by Rabbi Baruch Bear, and by Rabbi Shemeshkop, you know, that kind of thing. You know, he hit all the all the biggies in those days. This was the golden age of Pilpel and Kalukum in Poland, if you like that sort of thing. It's a dark age if you don't like it, like the Maral didn't like it. Uh, it's clear that our hero was into the Lumdus and the Kharifas, of that particular type, uh, we've spoken about before. Uh, this was the age, like I say, of the Chilukim. And, you know, you say a whole bunch of arts here, a whole bunch there, and then you compare them for uh, implicit contradictions, not only explicit contradictions. I, I don't want to go through the whole thing. And uh, maybe another time I will. And he flourished in it. I'll tell you again, the system is made for, like, a pyramid for a small group of highly elite people to emerge at the top. Well, he was from that group. Okay. So the system worked for him, and as a result, um, I don't remember exactly when, but the guy, let's say 20, 30 years old, so I'll put you in the early 1600s, so he gets a job to be a rabbi in this town, and this town, and this town, until he gets to Biggie. He was in Grodno, and he was in Tikton, and I don't know, you know, some of these other places, doesn't mean anything to you. The community's in, in, in Poland, and here's the thing. Early on, it's clear that he is what you would call now, I can only give you my appreciation of it. Like I said before, you don't have to swear to anything. This is, I'm sharing you my understanding of who this person was. Rabbi Yeshua uh, Ben Yosef of Krakow. The, uh, originally from Vilna. So, it's clear to me that he was a highly charismatic Rebbe. And to be perfectly honest, he was a Rav in certain towns. And that means that he wasn't Ta'alokha. <clears throat> no question about it. And he passed the showers and so on and so forth. Um, but really, his main love is to give a shear in Gemara in Lumdus, as that term was understood in his time. And he was wealthy enough to run his own little yeshiva, kola, whatever you want to call it. And he got to pick his own students. That's why he had guys like the Shach, the other people, you know, those A-plus guys to get in there. So, what is he lacking? You know what I'm saying? In other words, everything. So, life was good to him, right? Life was good to him. And he also, and they clearly were attracted by his personality. 
See, he was the type of guy who obviously was able to hawk and handle, interact with the Talmudim, uh, who are smart guys themselves. Um, and therefore, they could really go heavy into the lumbus. You know, I'm sure in his base marriage, they're probably screaming at each other, carrying on, banging the table, and a good time was had by all. Okay? Now, um, in the 1630s or something like that, meaning when he was eh, close to 50 years old, so, um, he was close to 30 years old, he took a job in Krakow, which is all the way in the western side of Poland, which was the capital city, and was in some senses the most chashem community, although it wasn't that large, the Ramo had been there, as you know, but listen to what I'm about to say, because I often see this printed wrong. You'll see the Pnei Yeshua, Av Bezim, the, the, the Kach Krakow. He wasn't really, Av Bezim means the chief rabbi. He wasn't really the chief rabbi there, except for a short period when he served interim. He took the job as Rosh Hashiv, Rosh Hashiv, So in Chashiva communities, once upon a time, especially in Poland, when the times were good and the money was rolling, and a lot of people were making money in those days. Now a lot were not, but a lot of people were making money. So, a community had an Av Basin, which is a guy who's in charge of running the court system. Usually, the Av Basin would also have a yeshiva on the side, that the community would bankroll to one degree or another. Doesn't have to be, but that's often the way it was. In addition to that, they had a, a, a Magid to give the drushes, and sometimes you'd have a Rashi Masifta, a guy to be the, the communal Rosh Yeshiva. In other words, the community itself would have its own yeshiva. And our hero got appointed this position where he stayed until he died. So knows he was not the Rov. And as far as I'm aware, he didn't give any competition to the, guy, the people who were. He was perfectly happy having his own yeshiva, base management, hocking away with everybody uh, to learn all this, uh, you know, the lumbus in greater and greater depth and things of that nature. Uh, he replaced uh, the Megalamukas, who had the same kind of a job. The Megalamukas you know, Nelson Shapiro, had been in Krakow. He wasn't the Rov. The Rov is a very particular position. It's called the Av Bezdin. And that guy is the salaried official who's in charge of posking the heavy shilas and making sure the court system runs properly. That's the definition of the Av Bezdin. Um, so Mamela in English you call it chief rabbi. But there were other positions as well. And as far as I can tell, uh, our hero wasn't interested in that kind of position. He had held those positions in other towns, but in Krakow, like you would say today, I'd rather be a Magadshir place in Baltimore than a rub of a shoal in, I don't know, you know, uh, Nowheresville, Idaho, you know. So even though you're chief rabbi of Nowheresville, but, you know, that's, it's garnished. Better to be, you know, uh, what's the expression? Tail the fox. So, um, tail the lion rather than head of the fox. So, you know, that, that kind of thing. And so that's what remained for the last 15 years of his life. Let's say for approximately 55 to 70, something like that. And uh, that's where he had a tremendous fame. Now, the person I'm talking about, especially if he flourished in the old-fashioned style of Lumbus, Pilpa Kalukum, they approached the text in different ways. And they really did it in the old-school way with certain Kanechas. The old-school way is... First, you learn the Gemara by itself without looking at Rashi or Tosos. You, you understand? And you really work it through with a Harusa. 
and you ask all the kashas and, and come up with all the truths that you can to the best of your ability. And that could take a couple of days. Once you're finished and you've done it to your satisfaction, then you start looking at Rashi and Tosis. You see? Now, that's the kind of guy our hero was. As a matter of fact, I saw years ago in um, a famous uh, article called Alder HaPilpul from Professor Dimitrovsky, which is a wonderful article. Chaim Zalm Dimitrovsky used to teach at the JTS. He was a from guy, but he was a, a genius when it comes to the history of Lambdas and Pilpul and Chalukah. And he mentions over here from uh, somebody from that time, uh, Ribzelig uh, Yitzhak Isaac Margolius, who later on was in Prague. And he mentions over there um, as follows. Where is it? Here it is. Bekachi gidli chaverai Ramosha Katsmi Seder Limuno Shal Zakeno Ramayor Avish Shal Shach. That this is how I, like you say today, this is how they used to learn years ago in Near Israel Hotels, on the old generation. That this friend of mine told me about how he used to learn, the father of Shach used to learn. Who is the father of Shach in Vilna? Who is his Chavrus, our hero? Ramayor Avish Shal Shach, Vagon Rabishua Avbez de Krakow. Mean Rabbi Shua, who later on became in Krakow, our hero. Okay, so here's a Chavrusa shaft between two geniuses in Vilna. Keshalom du Yachad, they would learn in a Chavrusa. right? They would come across something which Shita means not as involved, a certain amount of, of calculation in Lomdus. Also, Tanai Benayim. The two Chavrusas would make a deal. So, like I said before, if they, you know, if you come across a regular Gemara, so it's whatever, but if you come across a Gemara which has some depth and complication to it, so they would say, we're going to, you, you and I, the two Chavrusas, are going to work out themselves. Uh, they'll give their best shot at trying to understand the Gemara by itself. Asking all the questions and providing all the answers that they can. And when they did that, <coughs> so I read a Gemara and I say, this is what it means to me. And you read a Gemara and you might say, no, 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 I, I understand a Gemara to say something different. Remember, they didn't look at any Mepharshim yet. Okay? Uh, now listen to this. Hagon Rabbi Yeshua Hayimachavin Lepirsh Rashi. Hagon Rabbi Meir Lepirsh Tosis. V'kach Echzikul Kol Yemeim so no, the way they learned it, I'm, I'm telling you this for a reason. The way they learned these two Chavrusas, now mind you, our hero is a Chavrusa, the father of Shach, and then the Shach himself will study in his yeshiva. You know what I said? So, okay, now, and remember, money's not an issue. They're all well off. So it's, it's learning for, <laughs> I use the word learning for fun. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you, but you know you understand what I'm saying. Learning because it's fun, and uh, in the most intellectual sense of that word, fun. And so, he says that the natia of our hero was every time he came across a, a, a hard gemara or a sugi, it required uh, you know close introspection, close reading. He would read it lefi rashi, meaning he would say, "I think this," you know. They they talked it back and forth, but Maso Matan Shalacha, 
the two Chavrusas arguing with each other, intellectual arguments, and the way our hero saw it turned out in the end to be the way that Rashi did. When they learned Rashi and Tosa, they said, oh, Rashi says like me. And the other guy, the father of the Shach, always saw it the way Tosis uh, saw it. After they learned Rashi and Tosis, he said, oh, he holds like me. And so I can only surmise that this led our hero to have a predisposition towards Rashi. Uh, it's not a matter of being descended, because, you know, Rashi and Tosis is many of them the same descent. Bain Tom is a son-in-law, I mean, a grandson of Rashi, as you know. But they have a certain etiyah, um to a certain way of thinking, which is true, meaning it's possible a person to have it. We all have our natiyas. My natiyah, for example, is the history, not the mathematics. But I have friends who are the opposite. So he saw our hero, that his natiyah is towards Rashi's thinking. And this is obviously the genesis of the book that he eventually wrote, but he never published. It was only published after his death, long after his death. And that, of course, is the Magini Shlomo. Excuse me. But it wasn't only that had this Natiya to Rashi. Um, our hero enjoyed a reputation in his lifetime. Is probably the number one Magad Shir. But also, how should I put it? The smartest learner, maybe. I, I'm not sure how to phrase it. The guy who they say knew whole shots by Balper. And also, the Chido uses this language. And other people, the Tzemach W use the language. They always say, Koleil Asayar Velo Hechti. That whenever he comes up with a Swara, it's a bullseye. See, he never he never does anything but a bullseye. Uh, he always got it right. So it means he had this very smart uh, side to him uh, in terms of the learning. And the result is that, um, how should I put it? Uh, he decided that he's going to um, write a safer in which, he, you know, the, the basic idea was to defend Rashi against all the Tosuses. Now, that's strange to us today. Not if you lived in those days and you had the Chavruza shop along the lines that I just did. The natural Natiya way of learning was you go like Rashi and you defend it against the other guy. Meaning, if he held like Rashi and his Chavruza held like Tosis, and his Chavruza tried to hock him up and say, I'll prove to you that your way of thinking... Remember, at this point, nobody knew what Rashi or Tosis said. So this guy said, no, you're wrong, because it isn't this. And he shot back, and he knocked him down. He said, no, no, I'm right, because of that and that and that. So... It became just, and later it t- turned out that he, what he essentially was doing was defending Tosis against Rashi. You know what I mean? That that's what he was doing. So um, don't be surprised that you know he'll, he'll eventually publish a saber like that. Now he didn't publish it. He didn't publish anything. He uh, he lived and he died. His successors published his stuff and made him famous. In his day, he was very famous, but because uh, he was like the had the best issue, the best kolel, and the best whatever. Um, and his students, like I said before, including some of the Gedoli Ador, but most people would never heard of him if not for the fact that they published these books afterwards. Um, that's, the, that's, the, 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 that's the point. Now, um, the Magini Shlomo, I remember when I was in Yeshiva years ago, I used to look at it from time to time, is a, what's the right word? It's a uh, consistent effort, um, programmatic, to uh, wherever there's a Kasha on Rashi by Tosis, he gives an answer. And he did it in a bunch of Masechtas. You know, Shabbos, Pesachim, Ksubis, Gittin, all that kind of stuff. Not all of them, but, you know, a lot. Kulin, I think. Uh, and not every page in Shabbos, but, but a lot of them. Now, these obviously must have been taken from his notes or things like that. It is a real shame that he wasn't a monomaniac and decided to devote his life 
to just publishing one gigantic Magini Shlomo on every Rashi. You know what I mean? In other words, on every time, every single Kasha that Tosa ever asked on Rashi across Shas, that would be quite a work. But it was more chaplop than that. And second of all, we're dealing with stuff that's published long after the author died. Uh, he died in 1648, and these books weren't published for another 70, 80 years, something like that. Uh, and in between, a lot of stuff was stolen and plagiarized by others. That is how life worked in those days. For all I know, that may be how life works nowadays. But um, but nevertheless, um, you have a, quite an impressive effort. It's a regular alumnus. I used to, when I was, like I say, I haven't looked at this in many, many years. I used to like it for a while. Not always, uh, because it's a very different style of learning than they do nowadays. But on the other hand, sometimes he really had some zingers, I remember. I'm going back many decades now. Um, but there always was something defective about the language there. Now, I, when I was young, I attributed it to me. However, recently, when I asked about this the other day, I said, didn't they publish a new, you know, Magini Shlomo? It turns out they just did in Yerushalayim like a year ago. And I got Shavsi's, got it for me this morning. And I pulled it in. And I'm looking at the uh, new new edition, which is published by Eketz Forum, whatever it is, in some outfit in Yerushalayim, last year. So his mom is brand new. And he does indeed say that, uh, you know, praising the new edition, Madura Shona Loka Hasefer, Bechaseros Vyaseros Meshar Shebushim. The old copies were deficient, and I, I remember that. You know, you know, they used to have three dots and that sort of thing. Nino Shal Machaber and Mesaber Hagdamosa, the guy who first published this in 1715, said, that the original manuscript of the author uh, was not ready for publication. It was uh, had a lot of Hagos and erasures and Dvarim Tushtoshim messed up. They weren't all in order, some pages were missing. Sometimes they published, they, they they plastered the paper right over the Kedushim. I think that means sometimes parts were torn out, ripped out by people who stole the material and, and plagiarized it. And then others, add, you know, when they published it in later editions, they added their own uh, mistakes to it. So this new edition that I just got today, because I was thinking this podcast, I see it's very nice. And it's a nice kind of print. It ain't Manuka, but it's got a nice print. And good footnotes. Notice they did a good job, so to speak. You know, they did a good job bringing the Achronim over here. I see he brings Dr. Yezer, basically. So, you know, he has a lot of um, modern uh, postcards as far as one there. And um, turns it much more readable, you know. And I'm simply saying that this is something like if ever you're learning, if you get a hold of this book, which is a couple hundred years old, it may be. That you're learning more Rashi Tosas, and Tosas has a Kashan Rashi. And uh, what the heck? Take a look at the Magini Shlomo. Maybe he'll give you a terrace that you'll like. Maybe not, you know. But the idea is a very interesting one. And as I told you before, the origins, I'm convinced, have to do with this Chavrusa Shaft that's mentioned before. And, uh, you know, that he saw he had a natural Natiya towards Rashi. And uh, <laughs> let's put it this way. Uh, he claimed, there's a famous story, I don't know if it's true or not, uh, it might be true, let's put it that way, and I think it's mentioned offhand in the Genazim, uh, you know, catalog, um, 
Ki, this is from the person who published it, the grandson of the Mechaber, who admits that he was no gone himself. The author here, Rabbi Shua of uh, Krakow, said, told his students, confidentially, ha ha ha, Shagon Rashi boy love a heritage munasabiatsum of Hodo, Lafana Bisimcha Gedola. That he had a dream and Rashi appeared in a dream. So he got to see what Rashi looked like. Tumunasabiatsum of Hodo. And he said, I love your safer, you defended me against Tosus. Ashrecha Bolam Hazev, a Tolucholam Haba, Bishul Shatamatsilosi, Mipiho Arayos, Vakfirm, Giburm, Kharif, and Balitosis, because you defended me against the lions. Of the Balitosis, who, as you know, criticized the Rashi in every page, so therefore, when you die, I will come and and, and walk you through <laughs> the pearly gates. You know, so you won't have to go through the other stuff. I'll get you in, uh, because since you were nice enough to defend me in Olam Hazeh, I'll take care of you in Olam Haba. That's a, now you know Sigmund Freud could do a lot with that, but to back it up, the Chain Hava Shakoda Misaso. Kamuchatsi Shah shall cover near Yisrael about a half hour before he died in 1648. Um, all the big Rabbanim were standing around the deathbed. And our hero, who was dying, said, Panu Makam, Migway, Sherabenu Mayor Inyano. Rashi himself is is coming in to, to, to carry me over to the other side. He's going to get me through the pearly gates. Now, that's a little bit self-serving. I, I, you know, I don't know if I believe that story 100%, but let me put it this way. It could be true. Uh, you know, it's possible. One thing is clear. That he was a, a, a giant level. Now, um, he, he was also into Kabbalah, by the way, which is interesting because he was a cousin of Shimshon Astropola. This was an interesting period in Polish Jewish history when, as I said before, the yeshivas were flourishing, the Kabbalah was flourishing. Um, I read somewhere that he wrote a Pirish on Rama Mipano. Uh, it was a, it was a, he lived in the time when the Lurianic Kabbalah was spreading among Eastern European Jewry. Uh, that is true, and everybody was interested to one degree or another. His predecessor was Megala Mukas, who was a big Makobal, as you know. Uh, as I said, he was a cousin with Shimshaster Polar, who was the number one Makobal in Poland. Uh, and these guys were heavy hitters. But uh, that's side things. There's no question that regular Stamazoy was what you and I today would call Litvak, uh, meaning he was into Gemara. And it was fine with him to spend all of his time on that. Now, here's the thing. Um, so, so far, everything worked out good. But as I said before, he wasn't the Av Bezin, but people wrote him Shilas. Early in his life, he had been around in different communities, and he clearly was a gigantic gone. I repeat again, a gigantic gone. So, therefore, he used to get a lot of Shilas. Apparently, he kept these Shilas, um, copies of them. And after his death, again, around 1715, he died in 1648. So what's that? 78 years later, they published them under the name Shalos and Shubas Pnei Yeshua, which is, again, not identical with the Pnei Yeshua that you know. That's the name that was given long after his death to his collection of responsa. 
And these, I cannot say took off and become world famous. The Lamdanim know them. I can't say it's a household word, although it should be. And I'll tell you the truth, I'm ashamed to say, I have a copy, but only the old print from the 1800s, not the original, the original Mama's Chicken Scratch. And I cannot find it unless I lend it out to somebody, but I can't imagine who that was. I am waiting for this uh, Zichron Aaron operation, who are supposed to be going through all the shoes exactly of this era, of the uh, 1500s, 1600s, in Poland and elsewhere. And little by little, they're getting through all these Gdoma publishing them in nice new formats. I don't know how better accurate they are, but the uh, but it's much more readable. Uh, it ain't Nakudas, but it's the next best thing. It's in good letters. And then, uh, that's the Pinesh Shu I went again. I cannot find mine. You know, when this is all over, I'm sure I'll turn around and I'll find it was in some place I didn't realize. Uh, but his child, but I've looked through them, and his child is a very Kharifis, and he had questions from all over the place, and on all kind of questions, and I mean heavy-duty questions. Uh, if you even, uh, you know, go online, you can see the Chalakam and Arachayim, uh, and, and so forth, and Gerardin, Avnez, and Chosh Mishpat. Now, here's the point about the catalog, okay, which led me to think about the Panay show in the first place, and that is, what are they selling here? What are they auctioning off? Again, the auction is December 11th. Uh, that's right. So, uh, shortly before Hanukkah, Yudzayin Kisay. So, what is it they're auctioning off? Something very interesting, and that is, uh, Listen closely. It's a copy. It's from the Mechaber's lifetime. Now, he lived, like I say, decades and decades before stuff was published in a book. See, here I'm doing something very historical. How does a person's written stuff end up being published in a book? Now, if you have somebody who publishes in his own lifetime, he handles the whole business. I'll give you an example. Negris Moshe. Moshe Feinstein, for the most part, published all the stuff in his lifetime. So he looked it over, and he chose, and he edited, and it's up to him. He can do whatever he wants. He's the author. He can do whatever he wants. That is one way. Now, I'll tell you a different way. A guy writes stuff. He never publishes it. And later, his students, or his students' students, or 100 years later, 200 years later, they put the stuff together, and they publish it. Well, how do you know you got the original stuff? How do you know not screw-ups? How do you know they didn't edit things? And such things happen. Okay? That's a fair question. And you have the right to ask, where do you get this from? Usually we don't know the answer to that. But here in this auction, they have something which gives you a little uh, flash of insight into how this worked. And that is, our guy, the Rabshu of Krakow, Rabshu of Yosef, had a salary from the city. In fact, he did not have a salary. He didn't need the money. I remember. He did all Shalom and Asakal Pras. He had his own bank account. He didn't need anybody. So he could tell the whole world gave five friends. So he probably lived in a decent house. And more importantly, when people would write him Shilas, there's no question in my mind that he would talk it over with his senior students. And out of that whole process, he would write up a tshuva. Now, what happens when you write up the tshuva? You make a copy. Get it? You don't only send it to the other guy, but anybody who has the idea of preserving his own stuff, especially once he went to the trouble of working through all the lambdas and, and creating, as we would say today, the halachic argument, the legal argument, 
So are you going to send it away and you don't have no copy? Probably make a copy. Now, there's no uh, Xerox machine in those days, so you simply had to get people to make copies of it. So pretend I was writing a chuba by hand, and let's say for argument's sake, it was a 12, 15-page chuba, full of little writing. It's a pain in the neck and a half for me to write it in the first place, and then you say like this, oh, but I want to have a copy or two. I shouldn't get lost. I'm going to rewrite that whole thing. I mean, it could happen, but that's a pain in the neck. LMI, you hire somebody. You get a student or somebody else to copy it. So these are people who are very good sofrim. You get what I'm saying? They're sofrim, meaning their talent is, it doesn't bother them to write 10, 20, 30 pages of somebody else's stuff. And um, if you're a big rabbi like Peshul was, so he had a sofer or more than one, and when he would write a tshuva, he would send it off to the person who solicited the question. But in addition, he'd have at least one copy of his own. And this copy, where would he keep it? I don't know. Well, if you're a guy like our hero, kept it in a good condition, in a bound book. So all these guys used to have these bound situations in which they had a lot of their own personal writings. When I say personal writings, it doesn't necessarily mean that he himself wrote it, but it means he had a sofrim copy him off from stuff that he'd written in the first place. And that is what is at auction here today. It's very interesting. I'm looking at the table of contents of the Shalos and Shuz Pene Yeshua, the old original edition, and I see that has Chalak Eben, you know, all the four Chalakim, has Chalak Eben Ezer, um, about 20 Shilas, Get Rakach Nodel Shahayla Baal Acher. The guy divorced his wife, turned out she was already married. That's a nice case. Sefer Shachalak Tevis Lichi Vishnei Tevis. The guy wrote Chazi Lichi, you know, he wrote, he wrote the thing right, wrong, the, uh, the Ksuva wrong. Amen uh, this and that and the other. Now, listen to this. Uh, by the way, get Shisholcho Chachmi Sephardim Amsterdam, the Medina's Poland. That's interesting because the Sephardim write it a little bit differently. Uh, this is the 17th century. But here we have Aguna cases. Isha Aguna Shinit Babala Bechorov Tachas Aglida. Somebody uh, drowned under the ice in Poland. Isha Aguna Shinit Babala Bechorov Paritz Echor. The, the, she's in Aguna and can't get to her husband's grave because he's buried in the chutzner of a Polish nobleman. Probably won't let her get in there. Isha uh, shin is kasha begets. I know. Binyan Aguna and Kosen Bars Mayonis. No, it's real, real big questions. Okay, again, I'm looking at a book, and this book was published in the 1700s. Where did they get the material for the book? So they had to have the original ksavs of the author. No, that's not true. The original thing that the author wrote was sent off to the guy that they, that they wrote the tshuva to. I doubt very strongly that they went hunting all over Germany, who knows where, Poland, to find the letter, as, and which existed 70 years later, and it, when it was sent to its destination. That like boggles the mind. I, I doubt that very strongly. Rather, what happened was that um, they got the copies. Well, what they're selling in the auction is one of those copies, okay? Teshuva Arucha B'Ksav Yad B'Enyan Aguna Im Hosafos V'Dikunim B'Hashlomus B'Etzim Ksad Yav Yad B'Chasimus Agon Hanon HaMechaber. You understand? Uh, so what it means is, and if you look in this uh, catalog and go online and look at it yourself, 
If you look on page Lamed Hey, they have a, a photo of part of it, Shuvah by Yeshua Krakow, in which you can see what happens is, and I've seen this in other books, actually it's the fancy stuff, that the Sofer writes out, copies out the Chuva. The author looks at it. Remember, it's no spell check. It's not a computer, not a word processor. And so maybe the Sofer uh, left the word out. Uh, maybe he wrote something wrong that has to be crossed out and, and fixed. Like I say, it's a natural process that happens. Maybe the author himself, looking now at the copy, say, you know, I should have wrote this in extra. Um, and so when you look at this um, facsimile or you look at this photograph on page uh, Lamed Hay in the catalog, you'll see the writing of the sofer. And on the side and in the middle here and there, you see the, the, the handwriting of the of the Pnei himself. Rabbi Yishuv Krakow, um, in which he's obviously adding, cutting, pasting. So this is extraordinary, okay? And as he says over here, Tshuva mitoch pinkas tshuvas ishi shamachaber umusamena sheil kuchav hey. So I told you he was a rich guy, and so he obviously cared about his own uh, scholarship, published scholarship. And if he wrote a tshuva, he had a guy go and uh, make copies. And he kept him in leather-bound, um, you know, uh, nicely bound. Uh, I know from other places that he used to complain that a lot of his stuff was stolen after his death. That does happen. This is one that wasn't. And eventually this made its way into the Shalos of Bnei, Bnei Yoshua. Um, they say it's Shalos number 62, but that doesn't work out according to the edition that I have, that I'm looking at. But it doesn't matter, because, you, you you know, you, you can figure it out. I just read you a couple of Tshuva concerning Agonis, and this is obviously one of them. So if you're ever interested, if somebody wants to do a dissertation, like a person doing a dissertation is not dropping 60 grand on the original copy of the dissertation, um, on the in the publishing process of a tshuva. In other words, the let's say, for example, Ramosha Feinstein writes a letter, and then 10 years later he publishes it. When he publishes it, probably fixes it up a little bit, changes it around a little bit. Uh, he may be aware that some people had tinnitus on it, so you may throw that in in the new edition, in the in published edition, which wasn't in the original letter. That that's that's a very fascinating part of how you ha- give birth to a book out of the material of the original tshuva. Here you have the original material of the tshuva, uh, and it's uh, and it's signed by the author and all the rest of it. Uh, he said an estimated price is going to go for hundred to two hundred k. Okay, if you if, if if somebody wants a piece of history, I mean this is a rather remarkable one. Uh, and it would be a case where you have the pre-publication copy. You understand? So I didn't match it, obviously, against the printed copy. And like I said before, I'm waiting for the uh, Zichronar Nice Edition, save myself the eye strain. Uh, that'll be interesting to compare what you see in the one place and the comparison in the, uh, on the other place. Because sometimes the printer, when he prints it, he says, oh, the rabbi must have gotten this wrong. And this idiot printer, the Amaretz, who's putting the, the words together on the page, will change it at his own volition. I mean, that did happen. And so it would be interesting to see the history of this particular tshuva, how it ends up in the printed edition, um, and whether or not it, it gets any traction out there in the later literature, because the tshuva's Pnei Yeshua, among those who are poskim, is very chashav. It's not like the Igrits Moshe that everybody knows about all the time, or Vadi Yosef, or things like that. We live in different times. But it's a classic of the response of literature. 
that I'll say, classic in response literature, and it has to do with how things were done in the golden age of Poland. Now, he died in 1648, which, as you know, was the Kamelnitsky massacres in August. The Kamelnitsky massacre started, I think, in March or April, I believe. So, and, and that's the Kazakh uprising on the opposite side of the Polish Empire. That was in the Ukraine, which was all the way to the east, and our hero lived in Krakow, which is all the way to the west. There is a book now out by Professor... What's his name? The British guy. Very good book. It's called Save the Remaining Souls or something like that. Uh, it'll come to me. And it's, a very, it's a very good book about the impact of the Khmelnytsky massacres on Krakow Jewry and Poland. I remember reading about it. Uh, on Krakow Jewry, they're overwhelmed by the nature of the catastrophe and the large number of the dead and the Pidgin Shwiyam and the uh, the slavery that the Tatars took Jews and the women that were violated. and It was just like a mini holocaust. Uh, so I think the Shah maybe says that that killed him. That our hero was so stricken with the catastrophe, must have been in bad health anyway, that that finished him off. It's it's. I mean, I get it. You know, he was 70 years old. That's not old, it's not young. You know, it's, a, it's what it is. Uh, it is possible, if it's if that is what did it, then indeed you could say like this: he died, so to speak, at the right moment, because things were starting to unravel, and over the course of 1640 and 1649, things would get a lot worse. Now the Cossacks never did get to Krakow, because all the way on the other side of the kingdom, and the Polish wars lasted, excuse me, for 25 years, something like that. It was a really tough business. Um, the battles between the Ukrainians on the one end and the Poles on the other. Today, it's the Ukrainians versus the Ruskies. That time, it was the Ukrainians versus the Poles. Although, the Ruskies got in it, and then they're screwing both sides. That's why everybody's very weary of the Russians today, because they know that's how they play. Um, be that as it may, the Pinay sure emerges as in, in the following way. Somebody was at the very top of the pyramid in pre-modern Poland. Uh, we don't know too, at least I don't know too much about him personally, because he didn't leave that kind of, um, uh, th- you know, uh, memoir. Uh, and students don't write about it that way. But you can see they were clearly were enthusiastic about him. And if he had Talmud like the shock, you could figure what a heavy hitter he was. And um, and he operated very successfully in that kind of a con- context. He was lucky enough to live in a time where in the culture of the Jewish kingdom of Poland, uh, Torah was, uh, you know, Talmudic knowledge was held in the highest esteem. Well, that he had it. Uh, I mean, like I say, he was at the top of the pile. And so he lived, so to speak, at the right time. Had he lived 100 years later, life would not have been so easy for him, I think. But he lived in a time where everything was still going good and the Torah was flourishing. And what you have now is um, a a artifact in this um, written responsum, which I see which, in his personal book. First of all, to have his own book is, uh, you know, where he kept his like notes is kind of cool uh, from that golden age. Uh, so anyway, uh, if anybody's interested in dropping hundred thousand on uh, something like that, um, you could do a lot worse than the Pene Yeshua, I would say. But remember, it's the Pene Yeshua, not the Pene Yeshua. The fa- the one you know called the Pene Yeshua after his grandfather, I, I guess. Um, but it's interesting because the grandson became more famous. Be that as it may, I just wanted to share that with you. And again, this is being uh, auctioned on December 11th, right? On Sunday, December 11th, which is, what, two weeks away from today? Something like that? Um, out there, this um, 
there's not a copy. I mean, I shouldn't say a copy. It's the the guy's personal sofa wrote it out, and then the author himself, the Peshua, has his own, you know, Hagos, Mechakim, and all that sort of things in there. And if you're interested at all, I know if you do www.gnosim, you can see it yourself on the internet. I don't know how to do it. I'm, I'm looking at a printed copy. And it's very cool to see um, the handwriting of the sofa, which is pretty clear because that's what a sofa was. You don't give it to some yucks. You got to give it to somebody who's got a good calligraphy. And then, but you also see the the uh, writings of the author himself, of the macabre, uh, the penny show on the side. And uh, it's too small for me to go and sit and figure what it's all talking about now. Um, but as, as I said before, it's a, it, it's something involving Hilchah uh, Zaguna, which is complicated by itself. Anyway, with that, I wish you all a good day. And that's it. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.